seated. Well, it's so good to be with you this morning. My name is uh, Trevor. I'm the lead pastor here at Risen. Whoa, that's too dark. That's not, that is the opposite of what we're going for. Whoa. All right, we'll get that sorted out. Hooven, I think it's just called, uh, it's called Message, I think. It's just called RC Message. While we're getting that sorted out, our brother Chuck Wood is back from the mission field. And he told me, well, wait, 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 I want you to applause in a second. But hold on. Chuck, how many people in your time on your trip gave their life to Christ? 89 people gave. Now you can applaud. They served over 1,000 people caring for their medical needs. 89 came to faith. People rededicated their lives as well to the Lord. Um, Chuck, it's good to have you back safe, and, uh, and I like your goatee. All right. Um, if you've got a Bible, would you open up to Matthew chapter 21? It is Palm Sunday, and uh, Palm Sunday is uh, the beginning of Holy Week. We begin this week to to enter into today the most important week in, uh, in, in the history of the world. Uh, and so it begins with today, which is Palm Sunday. Then we'll move to Good Friday on Friday night. We have a service celebrating that. And then we'll head into Easter Sunday, which, weather permitting, may even be um, outdoors in this courtyard around the bend, which will be beautiful. And uh, it'll be a wonderful time together next Sunday. Um, but this morning, we are in Matthew chapter 21. Um, and the title of the sermon this morning is Palm Sunday Can Change Your Everyday. Palm Sunday Can Change Your Everyday. So uh, if you have a Bible, once again, uh, open with me to Matthew 21, and that's where we'll spend our time together for a few moments before we go and eat together and celebrate and the like. Uh, let me just say, while we're turning to Matthew 21 and you're doing that, um, some of you are reading through a Bible, our Bible reading program, and uh, it's... Did someone just whistle for the Bible reading program? That's fantastic. I like it. Uh, but we're in Joshua. We just started Joshua. Joshua's difficult. Uh, and so I recently had a, a member of the church say, hey, you know, Joshua's been a bit tough. Let me just say this to you all. Um, as you're reading through scripture, and you should be reading scripture every day, but as you're doing it, you may hit moments that are tough or passages that are difficult. Every one of you, I would highly commend that when you wrestle with a question, turning and opening to a good study Bible. And I highly recommend the ESV study Bible. It's my favorite. There's also, if you're an NIV reader, the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible is fantastic. If you don't read the ESV or the NIV and you want another recommendation, grab me during the uh, picnic today and I'll share one with you. But the first place you should be and you should go is not Google, um, but a good study Bible. So uh, you should all add that to your Easter wish list. Um, all right. Uh, Matthew chapter 21 is where we'll open up in the scriptures this morning, the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone asks, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. 
the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Who is this? That is the question of Palm Sunday. Who is this? That's the question that emerges as we head into Holy Week. And this morning, I want to talk about how Palm Sunday can change your everyday. Do you ever feel like there is a disconnect between Christian life and Christian theology and the idea of following Jesus in theory and the actual practicalities of living it out the rest of the week. Like, have you ever felt this sense of following Jesus is a, it's a great idea, but, but actually living that way is different? Like, maybe you have thought to yourself that you, you get that it's important that we should tell people, don't lie. Like, we would all agree, don't lie. That's a good thing to teach kids. It's a good thing for governments. It's a good thing. Don't lie. And at the same time, sometimes we feel like we have to tell a white lie. It's like helpful. Maybe it's even we see it as an act of kindness. So we feel this tension. Or maybe you think like, hey, it's it's great. It's very spiritual to say to people that we should lay up treasures in heaven. That's great. I'm for that. I'm for laying up treasures in heaven. Amen. But in practice, I really want this thing. And I know that money can't buy me happiness, but it can buy me that thing that I want. And that's close. I think uh, David Lee Roth once said, money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy a yacht big enough to pull up beside it. (laughs) There's tension. Or maybe you have this sense of like, it's good to have a holy book. Like you're in favor of there being a book that is elevated, that we would say, it's not just a book, this is God's word, this is a sacred text. Maybe you like the idea of the Bible as a holy book, but... Maybe you're like, we can't take the whole thing seriously. It'll be too uncomfortable or unfashionable to be a person who really believes each word in this book. Like maybe you have this sense that following Jesus in theory as an idea is good, but in the real world, in real life, it's just not practical. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I want us to see how this Palm Sunday text Um, a text about Jesus being the king, entering into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, can change your everyday. Palm Sunday can change your everyday. 
Some of you know this story really well. Uh, You've maybe been a part of the church for a long time, and we read this text every Palm Sunday. It does begin, as I said, the most important week, leading into Friday and then Good Sunday. And some of you know where this is headed already. You know that the crowds are chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest on Sunday. And you know that a different crowd will be chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, later in the week. And some of you know that Jesus will be killed. He's celebrated on Sunday, but killed by the end of the week, buried, and then he rises again, Sunday morning, changing everything. And this morning kicks off in the Holy Week what we would call the coronation. This is a moment where Christ is declaring that he is king, coming to his people on a donkey. And I think that this text makes all the practical difference for us the rest of the week. And so I want to do that this morning by looking at the groups of people that interact with Palm Sunday. Uh, I've broken them up into these three groups. You've got the committed, um, which is really just the disciples, those who are really committed to Jesus, his disciples. Then you've got the crowd, and then you've got the city. Initially, that was the disciples, the crowd, and the committee, but I thought you were worthy of three C words. So we went with committed, crowd, and city. So the committed who are the disciples of Jesus, the crowd, who are those who are welcoming him, and then ultimately the city, um, uh, Jerusalem, where he is headed. And I want to look at these three groups and have that connect to our everyday life. So let's begin with the committed. That's where we'll begin in verses 1 through 7. The disciples in this text are given a mission. They, that mission is based on the Bible, and they act in obedience. They are given a mission based on the Bible, and they act in obedience. In chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, Jesus says, go and get a donkey. And he says, if anybody asks, if anybody asks, you're just going to say, the Lord needs it. And you're going to receive it, right? How does Jesus arrange this? Well, the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus has been here before. He's been here multiple times. And so Jesus has set up this system. He has got a plan, and he is beginning to enact the plan that, he has been, that he's had since eternity past. And so the disciples have this task that they are given by Jesus to do. This is their mission. Go get these animals, and if anyone asks, say the Lord needs them. And if anybody asks, you just, you just say the password, if you will. Jesus has given his disciples a mission. And that's not just true of these disciples. It's true of every disciple sitting in this room today. Do you know your mission as a disciple of Jesus? At home, do you know your mission as a disciple of Jesus? Are you a disciple of Jesus, which means a follower of Jesus? Do you see that being a follower of Jesus has implications for your life at home? As a mother and as a father, as a sister and as a brother, do you see that God has a calling for you in those roles, or are you just leaving it up to the church? The church will do that for me. When it comes to the role of family discipleship, which we as a church believe in, the Bible is very clear. The primary responsibility for raising children in the Lord is not the church. It is mothers and fathers. 
Paul speaks of this in Ephesians 6. That's part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That's part of your mission, your task. How about at work? In your working everyday life, your Monday through Friday, are you on mission for Jesus? Do you honor God in your work with your work? At school, when you head into school, do you head into your mission field? Or are you sort of just drifting through life? A healthy church isn't a church simply made up of disciples. A healthy church is a church made of disciple-making disciples. Every disciple is called to be a disciple-making disciple. That is part of what it means to be a Christian. Our mission at Risen is to help the people of Los Angeles know God, to grow in faith, and go into the world equipped to serve. When I say that that's our mission, I don't mean that's our mission as it's, it's for those who step onto this stage. I mean it's our mission collectively as disciples of Jesus as a part of this church in Los Angeles. The disciples are given a mission. We are given a mission. And that mission that they're given here in Palm Sunday is based on, it's based on the Bible. It fulfills what the Bible had been saying. Their obedience is based on the Bible. Verses 4 and 5, it's very clear that what they are to do, this act of untying these two animals, that that act fulfills what had been talked about in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. In Zechariah 9, 9, there's an old prophecy about when the God's people would receive their king, and their king was to be riding, coming into the city, riding on a donkey. A future Messiah, Zechariah talks about, who was going to come to deliver God's people. And now these disciples are acting in fulfillment of this prophecy who Jesus is orchestrating. Jesus is going to make this claim. He is the long-awaited king. And the disciples are going to participate in his proclamation. And their actions are directed by Jesus, but in complete alignment with Scripture. What about you? Is your mission or purpose in your life in alignment with Scripture? Or is your purpose, your mission, how you spend your life, kind of a mixture of what Scripture says with a whole lot of just you, what you want to do? They have a mission, it's rooted in scripture, and then what does it say in verse 6? Look at verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. We should underline that in our Bibles. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. That is a simple sentence so rarely emulated. They didn't weigh the pros and cons. They didn't carve out exceptions. They didn't say, we hear you, Jesus, and once we're done doing what we want to do, then we'll do what you want us to do. They didn't say, Jesus, we've got a big to-do list, and we'll add getting these animals at the bottom of our to-do list. No, they were obedient. 
A healthy disciple is committed to the mission of making disciples. A healthy disciple bases their life and their mission and their purpose on the Bible. A healthy disciple practices obedience. If you feel like your Christianity isn't working, is it possible that you're off on one of these? Is it possible that you have not seen your role as a disciple of Christ to make disciples? Is it possible that you're not basing your life on God's word? Is it possible that you're not being obedient? I was, I've been, I was watching, I don't know if you saw, um, the, I was watching the Final Four yesterday, and you just, you can't believe how much effort it takes to win a championship in college basketball. Just to get just the road to the Final Four. To win a champ, it just takes so much to win a championship. So too, your Christian walk requires discipline. 1 Timothy 4, 7 says that we are to train ourselves to be godly. Is that true of you? Are you a disciplined Christian? So that's the committed. Next, the crowd, verses 8 and 9 and 11. The crowds point to Jesus as king, as savior, and as prophet. Jesus is sitting on the colt with a mother donkey following along, and he sits on the cloaks. In verse 8, as Jesus is headed in, they, they knew what this meant. They knew that when Jesus was on a donkey coming into the city, they knew what he was saying. They knew that he was saying, I am the king you have been waiting for. And so what do they do in verse 8? The crowds do. They start laying down their cloaks. They start gathering palm branches. They start declaring Jesus is king. He is arriving, pointing to himself, saying, I'm the king you've been waiting for. And now they begin to lay down their cloaks, saying, yes, in fact, you are. We see this kind of thing in the Bible, this laying down of cloaks as a way of recognizing a king. We see it in 2 Kings chapter 9, where you meet a man named Jehu. And when Jehu is anointed king, he emerges and in 2 Kings 9.13, it says, when Jehu, after being anointed as king, comes out in haste, every man took his garments and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So, so they, they're laying these cloaks down as a way of saying, Jesus is king. He's saying, I'm the king. They're saying, yes, you are. Now, what about you? Do, do you think Jesus is king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords? I'm not asking if you think that he's just a nice guy or that he's well-meaning. Christianity does not work in practice if you do not see Jesus as king in practice. Jesus cannot be your king on Sunday and you get to reign Monday through Saturday. He has to be, if he is king of kings, that means that you can't be the king of your own life. He must be. He must be the king of your Sunday and your Monday and your Tuesday and your Wednesday of every day. Let me ask you, does your life reflect that Jesus is the king of your whole week? 
Does your life reflect that Jesus is king every day? They don't just call him king, they call him savior. They cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. They are quoting the psalm we opened up our service with this morning, Psalm 118. Hosanna means save me, save me. And this term had grown in its usage to point to the Messiah. They were crying out to God, looking to Jesus and saying, save us, God. This one, this king is the one who's come to save us. He's not just the king. He's also come as savior. What about you? Do you accept Jesus as your savior? Jesus will not work in the practicalities of your soul until you receive him not only as king, but also as savior. When most kings triumphed, they showed up riding on horses, noble steeds that declared to people they were victorious. Here comes your king riding on a donkey in humility. And there's a point of tension and confusion in the text because many of the crowds who are proclaiming him to be savior long for him to save them from the things outside of themselves. They see Jesus and they think he's going to save us from Rome. He's going to save us from Roman power. He's going to establish his kingdom in such a way as we will be delivered from all of our external foes. They want saving from certain things. And I bet you if I asked you honestly, what do you want saving from, you'd have some answers. But Jesus comes to save them from what they need saving from the most. Their own hearts. We think that what we need saving from are external obstacles. But more than that, we need saving from ourselves. Jesus, at this point, is not coming to deal with Rome. He's coming to deal with their hearts. And Jesus cares more about your heart than the things that you think are really obstacles towards your happiness. Uh, Maybe I'll I'll put it this way. Some of you think that there are, um, that the great obstacle in your life is something that's keeping you from being able to afford what you want to afford, to buy what you want to buy, to have as much money as you wish you would have. And you can have money, and God can give you money, but you can never have true wealth without being saved from the idolatry of greed. You can have knowledge, but that knowledge will never become true wisdom unless you are saved from the idolatry of the mind. You need, to be a, you need to be saved by God from your addiction to comfort. Saved from your addiction to power. Some of you need to be saved from your fears in such a way that you operate like you know what's best for everyone and therefore you are a very controlling person. And you think everything would be easier if God would just grant you the ability to control everyone. You need to be saved from the idea that you know what's best. Do you see that you have a need in your own heart for a savior? They also call him prophet. 
In verse 11, dropping down to 11, the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, calling someone a prophet is a way of saying, this man is God's man. This man speaks the very words of God. Not just a giver of wise advice, but is one who comes with God's word. What about you? Do you treat Jesus' words with a grain of salt? I mean, I was in the Bible reading this last week, and I was just multiple times this week convicted about the ways that I am so unworthy because I have fallen short. Luke is, I don't know if you're reading Luke with us, but just Jesus in Luke especially has a, a way of just speaking the truth of what it means to be a follower of his. We cannot take those teachings with a grain of salt. We cannot dilute it to make it sound like other people today. Christianity only works practically in your life if Jesus is king and savior and prophet. You hear me? Is this making sense? Okay. Last group of people is the city. Jesus enters into the city, and the city was stirred up, and they have this one question of him. Who is this? He enters into the city in verse 10. He enters into Jerusalem. Jesus has this option. He doesn't have to go into Jerusalem, right? He could take another way. And sometimes when you are thinking about the Christian life, you will be confronted with the sort of safe way, the sort of easy way, and the difficult way. And here Jesus is taking the difficult path. G.K. Chesterton once said that Christianity has not been tried and found lacking It has been found difficult and left untried. What does he mean by that, right? He says, for many people, they see the difficulty and then they try not to do it. Jesus sees that the difficulty of of, of fulfilling what God has called him to do means he's going to have to take a difficult path. Jesus is not headed to Jerusalem because it was easy, but because it was necessary. And as I was thinking about Jerusalem and Jesus coming into Jerusalem and the difficulty of Jesus going into the city and the way that the city will treat him, I was reminded and I want to just impress upon us that God's word is reliable even today in Los Angeles in the same way it was in Jerusalem. He enters the city and what does it say? It says the city was stirred up. It caused a stir. Every time we bring Jesus with us, he's bound to cause a stir. Sometimes we we glorify and elevate and point to Jesus and we create friends for ourselves. And sometimes we create enemies. But it always creates a stir. You start talking about Jesus and you're bound to create a stir. Let me ask you. Is Jesus causing a stir in your life? Do do people ever say about you, look at that guy. He's he's so passionate about Jesus. He's kind of crazy. Or look at her. Man, she's she's so 
just dead set on, on spending time with Jesus and so desiring to honor him with her life that she's a little bit odd. She's so on fire that it's a little disconcerting. When the real Jesus shows up, he causes a stir. What about you? Do you ever cause a stir because of your faithfulness to Christ? Or would people in your life be shocked to know that you think anything of Jesus at all? And the crowd here has, the city here has one big question. Who is this? Who is this? And they're not asking about his name or his birthplace. They're asking about his identity. Who is this one who is causing the stir? Who is this one who people are making a big deal about? Who is this one who raised that guy Lazarus? Who is this one on the donkey? And that question is the beginning of our Christian faith. Who is Jesus? That question is so important. It's so central. And when we become a Christian, we, are be we, we, we initially begin becoming a Christian by saying, the answer to that question is he is who he says he is. He is the son of God. He is the Lord of lords. He is the king of kings. He is the one who we've been waiting for. He is our savior. He is the prophet. He is all of these things. But I, I want to just, I want to remind you that the question, who is this, is not just a question for the beginning of our Christian life. It's also a question for every day as we grow in our faith. The more we know Jesus, the more likely we're, we, we will say this. Who is this? Do you find yourself amazed by Jesus? Do you find yourself that the more you know him, you grow from curiosity to wonder? As you grow in your relationship with Jesus, do you find yourself going, I didn't know you were that good. I didn't know you were that wonderful. I didn't know you were that powerful. I do. It reminds me of this great scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or, I'm sorry, this is in Prince Caspian in the Narnia series, where, Aslan, where, where Lucy uh, meets Aslan again, and she, she's grown up, and she comes to Aslan. She's gotten bigger. She's gotten bigger, and she comes to Aslan, and she goes, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says, that's because you're older. And she says, it's not because you're older? And he says, no, 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 no. Every year you grow, Lucy, you're going to find me bigger. That, that's how it should be in the Christian life, that every year we grow, we should see God as bigger. Who is this? Is our question as much as theirs. Who is this king of glory? He enters the city, and the city is stirred up. They have this big question. And this works in the practicalities of real life. William Wilberforce was a politician who became a Christian in, 19, in 1875. And after becoming a Christian in politics, he decided that working in parliament had too much immorality and infighting. So he's like, I'm out. I'm a Christian politician. No more politics for me. He visited John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. And John Newton, in his earlier days, before he was a Christian, had been a slave trader himself. And Newton convinced William Wilberforce that he would do the most good by remaining in Parliament. William Wilberforce's commitment to Christianity broke his own, the power of pride and greed and fear in his own life and transformed his own personal morality. 
And that led him to thinking that God could transform the political welfare of the nation. Wilberforce once said, if Christianity should gain ground, there is no estimating the effects on public morals and the consequent influence on our political welfare. William Wilberforce, a converted Christian, led the movement of the abolition of the slave trade in Britain. Because King Jesus on Sunday change it, changes our everyday. In 1921, there was a chemist named Dr. Carver, and he was called to address the U.S. House Ways and Means Committee in Washington, D.C. He was given 10 minutes to speak. Carver began to speak. People were so enthralled at his speaking that they said to him, you have unlimited time. Keep talking. So Dr. Carver, a chemist, continued to talk. He spoke for an hour and 45 minutes. What did he speak about? The potential of the peanut. At the end of his address, the chairman said to George Washington Carver, how did you learn all these things? And Carver said, I learned them from an old book. And the chairman said, what book? Carver said, the Bible. And the chairman said, does the Bible talk about peanuts? And Carver said, no, but it tells me about the God who made the peanut. And I asked him to show me what to do with it, and he did. Dr. Carver was awarded the Roosevelt Medal in 1939, and the medal says on it, or said on it, to a scientist humbly seeking the guidance of God. The Jesus who is king on Sunday can change your every day. Possibly the most well-known Christian athlete in his time, Eric Liddell was a rugby football player, an Olympic champion, and a world record breaker in track. If you've never seen the story of Eric Liddell and Chariots of Fire, the movie came out in 1981, it's worth your time. He was born of missionary parents. He went to Scotland at age five, and he entered into the 1924 Olympics in Paris where he was the favorite to win the 100-meter race. Problem was, the race was scheduled on a Sunday. And Eric Liddell was convinced that God did not want him to run on Sundays. So Liddell, with just a couple of months before the event, decided to start learning how to run the 400-meter. He did not run the 100 because it was on Sunday. He ran the 400 instead. And he set a new world record at 47.6 seconds at the time. When he was asked about his God-given talent, he said, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. What I love about Liddell is that story is incredible. The story is incredible. But he knew he was made for more than Olympic gold. After that, he becomes a missionary like his parents in China. And you cannot, I could not find a bad word written about Eric Liddell. His reputation was so incredible. He ended up just serving the Chinese people, and he died ultimately in prison. Look, I could go on and on and on. I could talk about Sophie Schott and the White Rose. I could talk about, um, all, just, I could just, story after story. I, I, I wanted to use a chemist and a politician and an athlete because I wanted to make very clear that the Jesus who is king on Sunday can change your every day. Everyone can have their life changed. 
And as we as Christians, we say we follow Christ, but we need to repent of elevating charisma and personality and giftedness. Those things are not the most important. What we need to instead focus on is obedience and faithfulness and Christ-likeness. Can I get an amen? And that works in the church amongst the committed. It works in the crowd. And it works here in Los Angeles. The question is, will you have Jesus as your king? Not just today, but this holy week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that it is our tendency to give you our Sundays and then to disconnect our faith from Monday. And Lord, I do pray that the things we've talked about that emerge out of this text would give us a sense of conviction, that out of this text we would discover that we do, in fact, have a mission from you. We, we, you have given us a task You've given us a task based on your word, and you call us to act in obedience. Help us to do those things when we leave here today. I do pray that we would see Jesus as king, not just today, but every day. We would see our need for a savior. I pray for those who are here this morning who do not, who do not have Jesus as their king and savior. I pray they would see that their biggest problem is the ways in which they choose themselves and, Lord, the ways in which that has caused separation from you. That you long to reunify them to yourself, to give them peace with you through Christ. I pray that we would see Jesus as king and as prophet and as savior. And, Lord, I also ask that you would help us choose and take the difficult road. That our lives would be ones of pointing to Jesus in such a way that it would cause a stir that other people might think that we're weird because you know what? Weirdness is what holiness looks like. That we would know that. And we would understand that when we bring Jesus, we will be celebrated by some and dismissed by others. But we would do all of that by and through the power of your spirit, constantly growing in our amazement of Jesus as our King and our God. Lord, we do ask that this Sunday, this Palm Sunday, we would worship Jesus as King and Savior. Not just of today, but of every day. Not just of our, of our city, but of every city. Of our entire world. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I pray that our lives would reflect that. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.